Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that powers our technology world. In this episode, we're going to cover cloud gaming versus gaming on bare metal hardware. Who is likely to win this battle? I'm pretty sure you guys know the answer already to this. But are the days of a dedicated gaming machine numbered? Maybe not. Also, gaming mice, how do you pick the right one for you? I bet some of you will learn more than you ever wanted to know about mice in this episode. And finally, we're going to talk about Intel AI. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, as well as Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. So since it's only our second episode, and some of you might be tuning in for the very first time, welcome. This is a podcast that obsesses over hardware, the CPUs, GPUs, bare metal, raw love of silicone, ceramics, copper, and all the physical components that power our world. So with that, let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Wendy, how did you feed your addiction? Well, I woke up yesterday morning to an email from Newegg that had the 2700X on sale for half off. Those Newegg emails are so dangerous. I know they're so dangerous. I added it to my cart and I built a computer and then I looked at it and dreamed I could hit buy and closed the window before I got myself into trouble. Why? <laughs> Why didn't you go through with it? That's the they, they, it, that's the whole point. And then, and then you get all these boxes showing up and you have to explain to your spouse why you have all these random boxes showing up. Yes, I've been exactly. There before. I wanted to. I really wanted to push that buy button. But the, the biggest issue I'm having is the motherboard I have right now has DDR3 RAM. And so I really have Gross. to do a complete build. I know. But it means I have to do a <laughs> full build in order to upgrade my computer. So that's what's leaving me not upgrading yet. The total overall cost is just a little too much at the moment, but it's in the works. It will be happening hopefully sometime this year. You just do it in pieces. You get the process. You get the processor twenty seven hundred X now, and then in like a month or two, you get the rest. See, my fear with that is always I'll get the part that's broken, and then by the time I get the rest of the parts, the warranty will be out, and then I won't be able to send it back. So that's been my worry. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where uh, I know some people do that and they get away with it, but I know my luck, and I would be sent a broken processor, and by the time I realized it, it'd be like, sorry, it's been passed you know, 60 days. Too bad. Yeah. Too that's bad. A, that's good advice. And also, that's also why I'm the hardware paddle one. Cause uh, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though, you're wanting to upgrade and this is a very costly switch because you've not only got the Ram, which thankfully has been pretty low in price compared to where it's been previously, but rumors are that it's about to skyrocket. Oh, no. Maybe some of the advice, maybe Ram might be worth taking the risk of getting it Buy early. It because there, there are a lot of rumors there's going to be issues with stock and that's going to drive the prices up. And we've seen that, of course, occur in the past. You don't need a new GPU. So you've got the motherboard and the CPU, which best prices ever right now. But when you combine all that together, still pretty pricey. 
Yes, it is. I just keep telling myself that every time we put tires on a new vehicle, gosh dang it, I could have rebuilt my computer for that. (laughs) That's exactly how I think about every expenditure. (laughs) So Michael, what hardware quests have you been on? I actually did a couple things. And one of those is deal with computer crashing problem, but it seems to be more of a software related thing because, well, I've changed no, nothing, no hardware for like months. And all of a sudden stuff just started crashing. It's been incredibly infuriating and frustrating, but I have found a workaround. Uh, It's not a very good workaround. It's just like deal with older packages that haven't updated and that works. Uh, But overall, I am so happy I was able to get the computer working enough and long enough to do the show. So that's fun. So this impacted Destination Linux podcast. It took an extra I don't know, a couple hours to get everything recorded because of the issues that randomly popped up. Obviously, there was some suspect of hardware being a problem. I think I asked you to run some memory tests and things like that. Everything came back clean. Couldn't find a single hardware issue. And then you found that it was actually in the software where the problem was occurring. And we kind of deducted this because when you would go to the older versions, everything ran fine. When you go to the new version of the software everything locked up. So thankfully, no major expenditure on your part because you might have been visiting with uh, Wendy on Newegg and <laughs> buying a whole yeah, new that, system. Yeah, that was actually, I, f- I forgot to, I'm glad you mentioned that because the whole, like the, the test of the hardware stuff, like uh, I didn't even think about it being the problem. And then you, you mentioned doing a, a MIM test. So I did a MIM test. It's like a two hour long process or close to two hours anyway. And no issues whatsoever. You know, so I just took an old drive that I had a machine that I still had a, a system running on it. So I booted that in and everything was fine. And then I updated that system and then it stopped working. So something in the update packages has created this weird problem. That is not the only thing I've been doing hardware wise. So there's some you know extra silver lining. And that is I did an unboxing and doing some testing for a laptop, which is really cool laptop. It's a Kubuntu Focus got a 2060 NVIDIA G- uh, GPU. It's got a 9750H nice. uh, Intel i7, and it has like 32 gigs of RAM, and it's just Ooh. a beast laptop. And it's and I've been playing with it for the past week or so, and uh, it's, it's really awesome. I'm much more experienced in software, so I'm a little more critical about that part. Interesting experience because it's like my first full laptop review that I've ever done. And uh, this is going to be fun. So hopefully, I'll, I'll when as soon as that's I'm done with all the testing, I'll be doing a feature on this show about this laptop. So be sure to subscribe if you're listening to the podcast and haven't done so already. You might be going, "Why are you reviewing hardware if you don't know much about hardware?" And it's because the Kubuntu Focus laptop is focused on Kubuntu, and I am a Kubuntu enthusiast. Therefore, it makes sense for me to do it. And I'm kind of also getting help from Ryan. So to be fair, there's that. Just a tiny bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) Well, Ryan, you always have some super awesome hardware stuff going on. What have you been up to? I wish that was the case this week. I'm embarrassed about this hardware story that I I have to tell. But I'm going to tell it just like it is because this is the reality of what I worked on this week. I started seeing some messages about iCloud. And embarrassingly, I had used iCloud on my iPhone for a little bit. Generally, I don't like anything out in the cloud, but I trusted Apple with a lot of the stories that were in the news where they weren't giving access and things, and they were kind of holding back and pushing back against the government to give them back doors. And then 
I see the story hit where they basically are folding and have allowed the government to go into iCloud and poke around and get information that they need, supposedly with a subpoena, but whatever. And so I needed to get anything I had on the iCloud, and I didn't have much, but I needed to get anything I had on the iCloud off of iCloud. And this became such an issue. Now, I have to, because of my profession, carry around both an Android and an iPhone. So I have both phones. So I'm very familiar with getting photos off, file transfers, those type of things. But every time I would plug my iPhone in to my computer, it would just start to transfer the files, just doing the click and drag method of going into the DCIM folder, pulling them down, and then the phone would just reset or the whole thing would crash. So I tried this multiple times, was not able to get it work. And you know what saved me? My favorite piece of hardware that everybody should own at least seven of? The Raspberry Pi, of course. I ended up using a Raspberry Pi and setting up as a local FTP and have an app called Photosync that you can locally connect if your phone's on the same network to that little Raspberry Pi, connected some external storage to the Pi so it had more space and basically moved all of my photos over through that app, worked flawlessly, was able to delete everything and cancel all of the iCloud services, which was perfect. So... Not the best story for Apple fans out there. Apple just, this closed garden philosophy that they have, in some ways, it can create some protections. But in other ways, it just becomes so frustrating. And it didn't matter, by the way, whether I was in Linux or Windows, the same problem was occurring. And it's just a frustrating experience when you compare that to, say, Android, where you would just click and drag those photos and they would have moved over with no problem. And you can even use my favorite photo moving software, Rapid Photo Downloader, to pull things off your phone. Nice. Good tip there. Why didn't I reach out to you? I don't know. Yeah, next time. But it's so great that the Raspberry Pi was able to save the day. It always does. It is the most versatile little piece of hardware. Everyone should own one. Yes. And even people like me who don't know what to do with them, I have a couple. I don't have one yet, but it's always been that I'm going to get that and then something comes up. I need to get one. I really Yes, they even sell them in Target now. That's how popular they are. So there you go. Wow. I didn't know that. That's awesome. All right. So now to our core story, gaming hardware versus cloud gaming. So in one corner, we have the old school, the bare metal gaming machines I've built most of my life versus this cloud gaming where you rely on somebody else's services. If we set the stage today, your gaming setups consist of your gaming PCs, like I just talked about, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, all perfectly viable gaming platforms. Obviously, PC is supreme, always has been, but if you have those other systems, you could still game, you could still get by. Some would say that phones are even gaming devices nowadays. Now, maybe I'm just old, but I cannot for the life of me get into mobile gaming. There are times maybe where I'm stuck somewhere. I've done jury duty where I'll download a game to my phone just to get through that terrible experience of waiting for four or five hours. But I don't have any obsessive need to get back to any mobile games that I've ever played. But I know that kids really love playing mobile games on like Fortnite and games like that on mobile devices. You see it everywhere you go. So I guess you can add phones in there 
as a legitimate gaming platform as well. You can you can put it in there as a gaming platform, but legitimate. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, phones My are getting kids definitely like to play several games from the tablet. So they're more into the tablet. The screen size is one thing, even though I have a Max and a S8 Plus, you know, the screen sizes are pretty big. It's still not to me enjoyable as holding a controller or having a keyboard and mouse. But then again, I'm just old. So the kids. Part of that is most of the the laptops they're using that my kids are using every day for stuff are low end enough that there's no way that they would run steam. So for them, they can play a game like Minecraft, each one on their tablet, still be playing together. And that that's kind of where it fits in for them. Gotcha. So my daughter, like I've mentioned before, super Sonic fan. She loves to sit with the controller and, and knock out some Sonic. The industry wants to shove down our throats, like it or not, this cloud-based gaming platform. And we're going to kind of... <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> we're going to get into some of the hardware behind that because I think it's interesting. And also, if you're not a gamer, this is still relevant to you because this follow-up to gaming going on the cloud is really a continuation of what we've seen with every other service going to the cloud. You've got your Adobe, your Office Suite, all the storage solutions. Everybody wants everything in the cloud. We just talked about iCloud, Google Suite of Apps. It's about convenience. You can get to everything you need through a browser. And as long as you have a reliable internet connection wherever you go, then you have those services there for you. So every industry is pushing the cloud out there. And companies see a ton of value in this because they get reoccurring revenue through subscription services. So it's not a one-time fee anymore. They kind of constantly are getting that money coming in as you subscribe for that. You get $10 a month to death. I know I'm $10 a month to death already. I don't know about you, but it's just every company oh, yeah. wants $10. Yeah, for sure. A million different services. I know I recently, well, I guess it's been about four or five months ago, went through and got rid of some stuff because I'm like, holy crap, where is all my money going? And that's just it. They, <laughs> they're nickel and diming you absolutely everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to watch the new Star Trek Picard season because I'm a big Star Trek geek. But sure enough, you can't watch it on regular TV or anywhere else. You got to buy CBS's All Access Package, which is another $5 to $12 a month, depending if you want to be annoyed with commercials or not. And it's just a constant, you know, between Netflix and Amazon and everybody just wants some money. So I I don't know where the industry goes here. Do we all just keep $10-ing ourselves to death in debt? Or does at some point we say enough, we want to own things? I know some people I mean, are trying to do the year subscription to kind of give people a feeling they're getting a break. But at the end of the day, you're still paying the same. In terms bundled of subscriptions, like uh, what Disney Plus is doing with Hulu and ESPN. Yeah. Yeah, those are that's that's just interesting a way they do it because you you can't get the ad free version of Hulu or ESPN when you get the bundle, but so that's why like so they give you a little bit but then don't give you all of it. So if if they could give you a deal where you could actually get the full ad free, I would totally do that. But it, it's interesting because these services are they're annoying, but I also really want most of them. So yeah. and if you take in consideration the cost of TV 
you know, even right now, not even just back in the day, but like right now, the cost of TV is like hundreds of dollars, anywhere between a hundred to hundred and thirty dollars or something like that, or more, depending on if you get like HBO and stuff. Whereas if you just, you know, pick Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and get maybe even HBO, like their, their streaming service or whatever. If you get these, you're still paying less money, even if it is a bunch of stuff back to back, you're still overall paying less for if you're doing the TV thing. That's definitely an advantage there because I know we went from having a paid satellite service, paying way more than we wanted to for all of these channels that we weren't watching, what there was like four channels on the service. And when we cut the cord almost two years ago now, even though things are streaming, we're paying less. The only downside is when the internet's down, then most of our entertainment's gone. Oh, yeah. So I cut the cord many times throughout the years and have had no cable service for years. But every so often, I come around and like, well, maybe I'm going to get cable again and just see it. It seems like there's a show or something that I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to get the cable package and check it out, whether that's through PlayStation's TV package or some other package like uh, Sling I'll, I'll get their services and realize that I never watch it. I'm still sitting there in Netflix or Hulu or something else. Anyways, yeah, I, I get that you could definitely save money not having some of those services out there. Of course, with kids and kids shows, there's some reason to to have some of those packages at times. But this also provides these companies a lot more licensing control. They have the ability to pull things off uh, much easier in these cloud-based services, kick you off make sure you're continuing to pay and you're not pirating any license. They have, they can provide less customer support because everyone has the same interface. And I think one of the big things for companies is they can reduce piracy. Piracy would probably be at the top of their list. It's not foolproof. People still find ways around it, but it's probably a big hit to, you know, being able to go out there and just download all of these shows or software or games or other things makes it a lot more difficult when it's all stored there in the cloud. Well, also it's doing it this way makes it better for people who are willing to pay for it anyway, because the reason why a lot of people were pirating for many years was because the access to get stuff was so difficult that it was just easier to pirate. And now that it's these streaming services are making it easier to do, it does kind of flip that a little bit. Well, you have so many different hardware options for streaming many of these services, whether that's from your Blu-ray box to a smart TV, your computer, all of these different hardware options, you can stream many of these different services from. So it has more people able to where you're not paying rent on that horrible box from your cable company or your satellite company and then in order to get an upgrade of the hardware you have to sign another stupid two-year contract where you're locked in again (laughs) now we've kind of set the stage for why everybody wants to why companies are so interested in pushing this idea in and it's kind of cool right you could play a game on your computer and then you need to go upstairs to do something you could pull out your phone move that same game in progress right to your phone continue playing you kind of always connected in this ideal world, assuming, of course, we all always have internet and internet is foolproof and we don't have data caps and all those other things. 
the <laughs> companies who are getting involved in it, Google Stadia, GeForce Now, PlayStation Now, Microsoft Project X Cloud, Apple Arcade, Facebook, Bot, Play Giga, all the largest tech companies right there that I named on this frontier. So if you think you could resist it, it's kind of like the Borg here. It's everywhere. There you go. You may notice one big missing name here, Michael, and I know this one's going to speak to you, and that's Steam. Yes. Steam is the one that I would actually consider using because I know that if they were to implement it, they would implement it in a way that's customer-friendly. So they would give you the option to do the streaming thing and also be able to download it to your actual hardware to use your stuff if you want to. And I think that has the most potential. I don't know if they'd actually would do that or not, but I think that's the company that is most likely to be willing to do that. It's the one I'm most willing to support out of all of them for sure. And they do have that uh, really cool remote play together system, which is awesome and allows you to have people who are playing with you, even though they're not even using their, uh, they're not even using the, they don't have the game on their system. They could just connect to you and you're essentially streaming your game to them and they're playing with you. It's fantastic. So you're saying if Steam releases a cloud service, both of you would sign up for that tomorrow. So Michael would be all on board. I, I'd i want to see how it goes. I'd want to see how much does this service cost? Do I need to have pay for that service for me, for my main account and another service for my kid's account? Or would they do something family-wise where I could put both my main Steam and the Steam I use for the kids under one and we share that service? I want to know how the workings are, how much they're going to charge me before I was all in. Okay, that makes sense. And I respect that. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'd join on day one. I would probably request to be a beta tester and do it before anybody else. Beta would be fun. Yes. <laughs> beta would be tons of fun. I'm, I'm all I, for beta testing. Yeah, I'd probably even pay for the beta <laughs> testing. It's fine. I just want, I want to, I want this to happen. And I think Steam and Valve are the ground level. Yeah. I want Valve. I think Valve is the most likely to do it in a way that isn't detrimental to the customer or the industry or anything. So I I think that's why I would be so willing to believe them because they've proven themselves for like in so many ways. Well, you've got, so Google Stadia for me is a no go because it's Google from a privacy standpoint. I just don't like the company. I don't want to support, I don't want to have Chromecast and other things put in my home that do other things and listen and metadata grab and view me basically as a advertising paycheck for them. So Google Stadia is immediately out. GeForce Now, maybe, but I run all AMD at the moment, so probably not. PlayStation Now. Blasphemy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) PlayStation Now, possibly. Microsoft Project X Cloud is interesting. Apple Arcade, never going to happen. All the games they have are really indie games and things. Nothing wrong with that, but they're not mainstream in the closed garden aspect just not going to happen. Facebook, come on. Yeah. So I agree that Steam is the most viable competitor here. And it will be interesting because Valve's not a company that is known to just sit there and do nothing. So I assume they have something in the works here to compete in this industry. And it could be another Steam box or Steam device with the controller bundled with a controller like they've done in the past, which have failed in respect to how much they probably should have sold because they were both pretty good products, but maybe now's the time. 
it was just a testing phase where they were because they were just trying to see what the engage the market because it was the first hardware they ever did. I have a Steam Link and a Steam controller, and they both work great. And the Steam Link structure is, I mean, obviously it's on your local network, so it's not as it doesn't require as much bandwidth, but it's still rid- ridiculously amazing to be able to use your PC to play a game on your living room TV or something like that is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to set a stage here and then you give me the answer. Is physical hardware dead because of this? Our Apple has gone out there. We've all seen the commercials where the kids on the tablet and the mom says uh, something about a PC and the kid turns around and says, what's that? As they're playing on their Apple tablet, there's a lot of companies pushing this idea that basically we're all going to be carrying around interface devices, the need to have a physical computer in your home is going to go away. It reminded me very much of Thomas Watson of IBM, who made a statement in 1943 that a lot of people make fun of today that says, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Obviously, he was wrong, but maybe he was just telling the future here that today, because of all these cloud services, we're not going to need these physical components anymore. You know, me and you and Wendy, we all may sit here and have our old hardware, but people will come over and say it belongs to a museum as they pull out their tablet interface (laughs) and start gaming and things. Is this the reality? I have to say that every time I saw that commercial, I wanted to throw something at my TV. (laughs) You and me both. Device was around. I absolutely hate that commercial. And Mm. as far as kids using hardware... My kids use computers almost every day as part of our schoolwork. While I think companies may want there to be less hardware overall, I think hardware, having some physical hardware is one of the best options because you have more control over it and what you put on it and the different things that you can do with it. I hate typing on a phone. I want a real keyboard. I want my kids to be able to type on a real keyboard. I mean, there's just stories about people having like their kids doing stuff on a tablet or a phone and hating it for their homework because of how painful it is. In that sense, hardware is not going away, but also hardware is not going away for children in a in a joyous sense, too, because there are people who there are kids who are in the gaming realm of like setup stuff. So there's people who like doing videos about their setups. There's even channels dedicated to really nice setups and like critiquing them and that kind of thing. And it's, it's, there's also like a lot of the times where if you watch these videos, the ones that are critiquing, they'll say like, guess how old the people are who are, you know, sending in these photos. And there was anywhere between nine to 16 often. So like, there's a lot of interest in hardware. It just might not be as obvious to companies or obvious to a lot of people, but there is still a significant interest. So I would say that there's probably, no chance that it's going to go away forever, really. But at maybe some point, some people would be willing to do it because they don't have to deal with it as much. But I think as far as like the enthusiasm part of it, that's not going to happen. That's not going to, there's, that's going to be there for as long as technology is, about, is available, there's going to be enthusiasts for it. Yeah, it makes me sad when you talk about loss of control. I thought it was a very good point. When you ask people when they play with their phone today, how does a basic phone call work? They can't answer the question. They they can't tell you how a basic phone call travels through a network and ends up at another person. You start the call, 
magic, they answer. <laughs> magic, exactly. So when you think about it, if people are only interacting with these devices in the cloud, they lose all of that addiction for hardware that we have, that I love, that I grew up doing, that taught me to tear everything apart and look at what's inside. And so recently, I had a friend whose son wanted to build a PC. The mom messaged me randomly and said, hey, he wants to build this himself. Where does he put the glue? And I said, okay, tell him to stop what he's doing and come to my house immediately and we'll build this together. (laughs) But the expectation, I think, when he came was I was going to build this machine. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to help you build it. I will tell you when you're making a mistake, but you're going to learn this. But at the end, that smile, when we hit that power button and everything came on, we came to the boot screen, was just awesome. It reminded me so much of the first time I made those computers come alive like Frankenstein. And I would hate for kids to not have that experience because they just have this device, this throwaway interface that's not meant to be repaired, as we talked about in the last episode, and goes into the garbage when you need a new one. And they have no idea how any of this works behind the scenes. But that's that's just me. I still think the industry is going to shove this down everybody's throat. Yeah. I think the industry will definitely try to do try to shove it down our throats. But I think that it's it's also interesting that you bring up that that experience with that kid about his experience of turning the game the machine on and it working it be like this accomplishment of feeling. And it's not just children because it's the first time I ever did it. I was an adult and it still had the same effect. I was like, it actually worked. I did it. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter if you're an adult or not. Like it's still something that's just fun to do. And all it and it's also kind of daunting for people who've never done it before. It looks like it's a very complicated thing. And it is technically, yes, but the actual process of doing it isn't that difficult these days. If people were just kind of introduced to it, they'd be more enthusiastic about it just because of that feeling that you get when that you accomplish that task. You can't beat that sense of accomplishment, that knowing that you've taken something, put it together, made it work. I mean, it doesn't even have to be building a full computer. The first time I opened up my computer and swapped out the power supply and everything started, Absolutely. I'm like, woo, woo, I didn't break it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I think there's a big issue with cloud gaming that we need to get into. The ISPs, the internet service providers are a big problem here. A lot of people, number one, don't have fast internet speeds. They have latency issues. They have data caps. This is a major problem that I think a lot of companies are really hoping the ISPs will just suddenly decide to step up and invest billions in their infrastructure to get everybody enough speed to play this stuff. I think we're years, if not a decade, until we have people cross the plains with good data speed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as most of you know, especially if you've seen me on Destination Linux, my home internet speed isn't always that great. I live in the country where fiber internet is not possible to reach everybody. So for our family, the thought of internet gaming all the time right now just isn't possible. If we want to watch a movie and somebody wants to play a game at the same time, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, a lot of people are banking on 5G. I'm in the telecom industry. I laugh a little bit because 5G is amazing. It's awesome. It's just barely anywhere. And it takes a long time to build those services out. 
And the fallback is back to 4G, and those speeds really wouldn't work. They work for some games. Some people will game on 4G, but for a lot of games where latency and things are important, it's not going to happen. And a lot of places, buildings, materials, foliage on the trees, everything blocks cell signal to the point where you're just not going to have a good experience there. So I'm not sure. Now, some people, if you're in a big city and you've got you know line of sight to a tower, you're probably going to could game on 5G and have a great experience, but I don't think that's the solution that fixes this magically. And how much more, if you're doing 5G through your cell phone company, how much more are they going to charge you to game on their network? If you got an unlimited plan on 5G, you're going to be spending a lot of money to play some games there. So let's get into the hardware that powers these cloud services, because I thought this was interesting. Microsoft is leveraging Xbox components. So as far as I could tell, they're using AMD Navi line GPUs and they're the way their video basically states is they took a bunch of the components from actual Xbox one devices and found ways to layer it into a server and get the most power they could out of that in that fashion. I thought that was a really unique approach if that's actually how they did it. If somebody knows I would love to know, but that's how their video described it. AMD, of course, in the PlayStation 5. So AMD has a big play in the console market and also seems like in the cloud market as well. AMD seems to be really sticking their fingers in a lot of different places and making quite a few connections with different companies and such. So their hardware is getting to be everywhere. They're creating fantastic partnerships out there, and this has let them grow tremendously. Google Stadia is also powered by some custom AMD chips. Really, you know, GeForce, like we talked about, it's got to be powered by NVIDIA, Apple Arcade, who cares? And uh, you've got little (laughs) services out there like Shadow, you know, and things that run on Intel Xeon CPUs with NVIDIA cards. So NVIDIA is out there. Obviously, they're a big player, too. But AMD having all the new gaming devices is a big one. And, of course, getting Google Stadia out there is big. I wonder what Steam would run this on if they launched their service, what kind of hardware they would choose. AMD. If they're smart. Well, AMD is already showing that they've got the ability to do it in their partnerships with other groups. So it would they would be a smart choice to go to for Steam as they've got the hardware line supported already. Yeah, and they also have Thread Rippers. That's it, my man. So <laughs> cloud gaming is going to be pushed heavily from the industry. I think they're going to do everything. They're going to pull every every trick out of their bag. And so you can expect exclusives, perks, cheaper games, maybe integration into everything from your TVs to phones. Anywhere you go, you can sign on and play a game. Lower cost of entry, which means parents on Christmas don't have to go spend $599 on a game system. And one thing I thought about, too, was one of the barriers to virtual reality is the fact that you have to have this PC capable of playing virtual reality, which is very expensive. So you're looking at probably at least $600 if you could build it yourself on up to get a game system capable of playing virtual reality. But then you've got to go around and spend close to another grand to get a virtual reality system to play a couple of games out there. This might be something to help push virtual reality forward because now you don't have all of that expense. You're just going to basically probably connect your virtual headset into a controller that plays off the servers somewhere else. 
I mean, that's an interesting thing. I, I think that they would still have to buy some kind of device, like you to buy a special controller, like Steady has their own special controller that connects to your internet directly. This headset thing would have to be also some super special, so you wouldn't be able to just rig up a system with an existing, like what the, uh, I don't remember who made it. Uh, the like Valve has their own index, but there's also the other one from I have some phone company. I don't remember. It's a hardware thing. Yep, there's a lot of them out there. Not a lot of them have taken off as everybody expected. So I think the end result of this is there's going to be a hybrid approach. I think hardware is here to stay. I do believe that like PlayStation Now, which if you're playing on your computer, can apparently tap into utilizing your GPU to offload some of the stress off of the servers and things. I think this type of hybrid approach will be here to stay. Obviously, PlayStation 5, the new Xbox, is physical hardware. It's a full gaming system loaded down with AMD custom chips that's capable of gaming on its own, but the layer on cloud services to that. So we're right back to the situation where you're probably going to have to pay for your system, your PC, plus other subscriptions because you need to play some of those games. They're exclusive there and the industry really wins because they just get tons of money from us. Yeah. And also the way that Stadia is structured is insane to me. Like, the fact that you, when you buy a game, you pay the full price of that game and you still do not own that game because you cannot play that game without their service. And to me, it's like, why on earth would I do that? That I is wouldn't. just ridiculous. Yeah. So it, it would be, it would need to be at least something like Steam, where I buy the game, I can play it online or not. Or, you know, in this case, we share games between two different accounts. And, and make it work that way. I'd want to be able to play it locally. Power goes out, especially in the winter here, and a truck slides off the road and takes out power lines. Who knows? I don't want our entire system to be reliant on does our internet work or not. Yep. All right. So let's get into our brain filler of the week, and that is what makes a good mouse. Now, if you're a gamer on the PC, which you should be, then you use your mouse and keyboard like a boss. And that's why you get mad, you know, kills, mad one shot kills from every game that we play like CSGO. Yeah. 360 no scope. That's it. 360 no scope. Yeah, that's what we do. So to do that, to perform that, you need a good mouse. Well, generally. So what kind of mouse do you use, Michael? I have a Rocket Kova. Wendy? It's- right now I'm using a Logitech ball mouse. You're talking about the rubber ball that rolls around. No, no. The one that you use your thumb to steer. Oh, okay. All right. I was scared for a moment. I'm like, seriously, I'll send you a mouse. (laughs) No, no, not the ones where you had to take off the bottom and and the little ball with rubbing alcohol and then pop the ball back in and, oh, yep, we're working again. Okay. So if you're using the little ball and the mouse, I assume, and I don't know, maybe people tell us right in and let us know you can game with one of those i assume you don't game with that mouse uh, the the kind of gaming that i do is trucking or my husband plays a farming game so none of it needs a really high speed mouse it's more about what's more comfortable in the hand in the past i've used a vertical mouse and that was the best for my wrist logitech has a vertical mouse that i really want but it's just been expensive enough that I haven't hit the go button on that yet. Another new egg in your cart, but never hit buy. Yeah, pretty much. 
So I think that there's some really interesting considerations to a mouse that a lot of people don't take when they go to a store and they're like, hey, I need a mouse to go with my computer. It's probably when they're building that machine like you were earlier in the week, Wendy, the last thing that they're thinking about is, ooh, I need a good mouse and keyboard. And we'll get into keyboards in another episode. But I think the first thing that I have to think about because I'm left-handed is the curvature of the mouse. Most mice are curved slightly, and that throws me completely off. My mouse is on the left side of my keyboard, and that curvature does not fit right in my hand at all. So I have to consider, is it a left-handed mouse or a right-handed mouse? I assume you folks who are not as sophisticated as me and use your right hand you just go in there and everything works for you. So congratulations. Well, that that is easier, but my mouse is the one that's or doesn't actually have a hand shape. So it's I, either way would work. Uh, but that's that's just accident that that happened. Uh, but I used to have a trackball as well that uh, that that Wendy has, and I liked that. But when I started doing gaming, it was way too uh, it was way too much effort to try to use that. But I got rid of that a long time ago and at, after a while I started to not care and my mouse for in many years was like a basic and I think it was I think it literally had the brand gateway on it whatever Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> But then I started talking to you and you were explaining to me why I needed to get a gaming mouse I've been using this one for I don't know at least a, almost a year and I would not go back Do you guys, are you aware of the grip that you have on your mouse? So there are three types of grips that most people categorize their grip into. There's the palm grip where basically your palm is slightly rested onto the back of the mouse and you kind of outstretch your fingers so that your fingers are laying over top of the mouse buttons entirely. There's the claw grip where your palm is more on the surface of say a mouse pad or your desk. And you kind of got that claw look going on. You know, if you pulled your hand off, it'd look like you're trying to scratch somebody. And then you've got the tip grip, which is your fingers are kind of just on the tip of the buttons and everything else is more, you've really just got your three fingers on the mouse and everything else is laying on the desk. So that is something that I think a lot of people aren't aware of that you do have a grip on a mouse that's different and that could determine what mouse you should buy. I didn't know that these were things until now. So yeah, I, I guess. I guess mine's a palm or something. I don't know. Uh, I do rest my palm on the mouse a little bit, but not like a ton. So I don't know how much that would classify it. I guess I do like a hybrid of the palm and claw. Yeah, the palm. definitely a palm. Palm is most popular. Most people are palm grip, but there those other grips out there, like you'll see for fast action gamers, they'll do the claw grip. That's what they recommend. And if you need really extreme rapid movements, the tip grip is like supposed to be the supreme. Uh, Those are where the pros go with. So, so that's how you 360 no scope. That's how you 360 no scope is the tip grip. If you're into gaming and those type of things, if not, probably not such an important factor. So I think you have to look at the type of grip that you have to determine the type of mouse, because if you, some mice have big humps in the middle, And that would fit a certain grip better than, and some are more elongated. So if you do the palm grip, you might want a more, you know, long mouse, depending on the size of your hand and things. And so what does this all boil down to? Do you need to go take a bunch of measurements and figure out exact calculations? No, you just need to hold a bunch of them in your hand with your normal grip style and say, does this actually fit? 
And this goes into the whole ergonomic standpoint because you can actually hurt your wrists and be very uncomfortable, even if you're not gaming, just working because you've got the wrong mouse. And we use these things a lot. So it matters. Yeah, it makes a big difference. And that's one reason I like the the vertical mice so much. Just the way that most regular mice put pressure on my wrist. When I'm when I'm doing a whole lot of work, I'm using my Wacom tablet for different things. So I'm not using the mouse for a lot of picture editing. But the vertical grip on the mouse just seems to align my wrists enough that if I'm doing a lot of work with the mouse, I can enjoy my time there and not have my wrist aching all the time. That was a problem with the old mouse I had is I'd get done for the day and my wrist would hurt so bad that I didn't even want to go back to the computer the next day. Yep. No, it's funny how those mice have come back around because there was a point where they were really popular. I remember some point in the 90s and then they kind of went away entirely. And now I see a lot of people in the office using them again. So makes sense. You've also got wired or wireless. This is a big contention in the gaming community. Um, There are very expensive high-end mice out there that are wireless that are supposedly very good for gaming, but you've got things like input lag. And even if you have that really expensive wireless mouse, you still have issues potentially with interference that can occur. So most people, I would say, would recommend in the gaming world anyways, a wired mouse because it's just left less hassle to deal with. You don't have to charge it. You don't have to worry about interference and you're going to get the fastest speed possible, at least right now. But certainly if you're not into gaming or maybe you do some gaming, but you're working most, the convenience of a wireless mouse can't be understated. But that's another factor. The, the expense is what matters to me. It's like the, I, I don't I don't play games enough with a mouse and keyboard well enough for that to actually be, even be noticeable. I mean, I'm amazing, of course, but like uh, in, <laughs> in reality, uh, not so much. Uh, so the wired is just, I think that makes the most sense just because it, it, it supposedly is better anyway. Plus, you know, you're going to save a lot so of money. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You've got name brands like Zowie. That's my favorite. That's my personal favorite. What I use the most. I have literally every one I'm going to name here. I have one of their mice because this is something that I just really wanted to find the best mouse. And I ended up keeping them because I have so many computers in the house. So I have a Zowie. I have a Corsair. I have a Steel Series. I have several Razors. I have Logitech. I think Zowie to me is my favorite. And a lot of that is based on the fact that I can make change the settings on the mouse, which is another consideration for you who use different operating systems that may not be supported with the mouse that you buy. Like if you're using Linux or Mac, then you want something where I can change the settings, such as the DPI or other things through the hardware on the physical mouse itself versus going through software, which may not be compatible with the operating system that I'm using. So that is a consideration. And that's why I like Zowie because everything is done through the mouse itself for the settings. I don't have to download any software to change things. And Zowie is the most fun to say. (laughs) That's right. I didn't even think (laughs) about that. Believe it or not, there are more things, and we could do a whole episode probably on a mouse, but I'm going to go through them a little bit quick here, and that is the type of opticals that it's using. Is it using an optical or a laser? No more mechanical roller balls, so I'm so glad, Wendy, to find out that you don't have the one with the little rubber ball at the bottom. 
Uh, most prefer laser. They work on all surfaces. So higher DPI works on any surface. To me, this is a huge deal working on any surface. There are so many times where I'm just grabbing a mouse. I need it to work on the kitchen table. I need it to work wherever I'm at. And the laser allows you to do that. Whereas if you go for optical, you are going to have to have a non-reflective or smooth surface. So I go laser all the time, but some people still apparently go optical because, again, you save some money and still get some decent DPIs on it. Question. Yeah. Do you still recommend a mouse pad for gaming? Yes. My entire desk is one of these Corsair long mouse pads, and I just find that it provides that friction that I need so that I'm not moving too quickly on a high DPI and more precision than if I, for instance, my desk underneath this mouse pad, it, it lays across the entire desk. Kind of like a physical thing, but it's not for the mouse. It's for you. It's for your hand and the mouse pad. Like, so it, it kind of like keeps yeah. you from moving too much rather than the mouse itself really. Cause it used to be, you needed a mouse pad because the rollerball required it or because the optical was better and you didn't the reflective issues and stuff like that. Cause my desk is a little bit reflective and I assume I have a laser because I don't see any problems, but I don't, actually have any idea. Yeah, I think it provides the friction and it also provides some comfort to the surface of my desk, which is hard, which helps my wrist and because part of my palm rests onto the surface itself. So yeah, I think having, I don't think you have to have one, but I would recommend one. Certainly, I think you're going to have more comfort. Well, and in the sense of gaming for the question, I guess it, it is better overall because it does improve in certain ways, like giving that more precision and everything. So yes, uh, that control. I've seen... Yeah, I've seen people, their entire desk is a mouse pad. Like they've replaced not even just a long strip mouse pad, but they have like replaced their entire surface with a mouse pad. I love and respect those people. See, my entire desk is a whiteboard. So there's the difference in priorities there. I need to be able to take notes on top of my desk. Really? So you have a whole whiteboard as your desk? Yes. That my entire desktop cool. is a whiteboard. So I keep some markers right there on my desk. And if I'm on a phone call or looking something up, I can jot a quick note down directly onto my desk and I have to look for a piece of paper and be able to take care of it and then yeah. wipe it away when it's I done. just feel like I would lean on the desk and then erase the most important note of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's what wet erase markers are for. Ah, gotcha. Uh, that is a pretty cool idea, though. So DPI is a way of determining sensitivity. So if you see DPI on a mouse, this is an important factor. Uh, this could be great for certain games when you get into the higher DPIs where reaction time is everything. It's different from software sensitivity that you set because it's hardware-based. So some people say, well, I'll just get a mouse. I don't care what DPI it is and set in the software and operating system the highest sensitivity. Completely different factor. You have a completely different experience with the hardware of it. Uh, also, if you have a bigger monitor, you would be interested in a higher DPI. So you're not running out of desk space before you get to the other side of the monitor. So those of you with the big <laughs> monitor, if you're constantly rolling across to the other side to get your mouse there, this is probably because you bought that cheap mouse that you didn't look at any of the specs or any of considerations for, and you know, you're suffering. Your productivity is suffering. Definitely the disadvantage when you have four monitors and trying to get across all four monitors. Yeah, and that's where DPI really comes in handy. Of course, you have the rollerball, so you can just stay, leave your hand there and just kind of keep rolling away. You might find a really high DPI regular mouse would allow you to move across even quicker. So something to consider for the future. And then pull rate, 
how often does the, the mouse report its position back to the computer? So a lot of people don't know about pull rate. Do you guys look at the pull rate when you're buying a mouse? Absolutely have no idea. Didn't know that that was a thing until you said it. I haven't. There you go. Well, now you know to look for pull rate. If a mouse has 125 hertz pull rate, it's reporting the position 125 times a second is an easy way to remember it. Or 1,000 hertz, think 1,000 times a second. So is higher always better? We kind of went through this, I think, last week on a couple of things. Not really. Not always. 500 hertz is really the sweet spot that seems to be where most people prefer. If you're using something like competitive CSGO, then go for that 1,000 hertz. But keep in mind, it's reporting that position back every second to your computer, and that's going to take over valuable resources you don't need to waste because you play games like me and Michael and are terrible at them, so why bother? <laughs> that's that's the best way of describing our our abilities. Exactly. Why bother? At the end so, of the day, comforts everything. Yeah, for and sure. And that's the one reason why I want this mouse is comfort. The vertical mouse have been the most comfortable for me, though this trackball isn't bad. But I can tell if I've used it for too long. Yeah. So I actually have a question because I I got this mouse because you told me to, and I didn't really question it at all. Um, that's why I'm on this show because I want to. I mean, I'm quite. I'm questioning things now, and I want to learn more. If an optical mouse and a laser mouse, is it is it possible to tell what you have just by looking at the mouse? So I think the really dif- big difference that you can see is that in the LED, you're going to see that light up when you turn your mouse over because the optical that we talk about today is really just LED. And when you have a laser mouse, usually when you turn it over, you're not going to really see that laser. Now, it's a very low-powered laser, so you, you're not going to see it, but you probably don't want to stick it up to your eye and stare at it for four hours. Uh, it might do some damage, but generally the LED ones down right now. Yeah, the LED ones you're just going to see bright red or some color down there, and it's going to be very obvious that it's an LED optical. Cool, good to know. It was a great question, by the way. While we talked about Intel last week, we we also didn't talk about something that was really interesting to me because as a software person, using hardware to improve the software abilities of certain applications is very interesting to me. So Intel brought something that to, that was not talked about a lot in the press for CES 2020, but they announced something that is game changer to me and it like has a lot of potential. So they demonstrated several pictures in Photoshop in which they needed to do certain things like removing the background. And normally this is done through various different tools where you could use the magic wand, lasso tool, or the most time consuming, but the most reliable pin tool system. And I typically use pin tool, even though it takes forever. But Adobe demonstrated with AI technology and Intel stuff that they it allowed them to just click on a background and simply super easily remove the background from an image and a very detailed image. And in case for like a rose, they had the outstretched petals of the rose because the color of the background is often the color of the rose, depending on the kind of rose it is. So it made it a lot harder to differentiate between the two because Mm. contrast is very important for background removal tools. And we've had these background removal tools for a long time. They just been not good enough to use. So typically, even though they existed, I didn't mention them in the previous thing that people use because they're not that good. This though is ridiculous because they even showed it another example where they did it with a bird and they compensated for the light shining through the image. They did a more feathered approach by getting rid of the edges of it in a more clean way, which is 
to me as a designer and I use Photoshop and other tools like it, it, it ex- excited me to a ridiculous level. So I am, I, I'm very interested in like just seeing how this works and even the idea of that hardware can just make it where I click one place and it's like, bam, it's done. That is amazing to me. Yeah, this is a great place where hardware is integrating with software. I want to know, are they making it so more and more pieces of software, and I'm thinking along the lines of open source software, are they able to easily utilize this AI, or is it something that they're going to have to pay a licensing fee in order to integrate into their software? I would expect to be super expensive and I expect to be expensive from Intel to the companies and expect it to be expensive from the companies. To yeah. The there's yeah, no way they're going to give this out as open source. I mean, Intel does a lot for open source, but I highly doubt, let me put it that way, that they're throwing this out there. If they are, I will eat my words gladly. And if they allow other companies yeah. to just grab this and use it, that would be awesome. And I would give mad props to Intel. Um, I doubt it. I know that this is reliant on their hardware. So this is what we're talking about here is their new Ice Lake, which is 10 nanometer. We discussed in the last show. It's using Intel's AI accelerator. They've got all kinds of cool words for it, like Gaussian neural accelerator, using uh, inferencing functions and applies algorithms and knows facts about them and all of this cool stuff that basically means they are integrating this software into their hardware here in this ice lake and they're able to do cool things like this in in utilizing it. So a lot of people were joking about falling asleep during Intel's presentation. Like it was a thing, especially when the CEO took the stage. And I think people missed this because of the fact that they didn't come out on stage holding a chip and things like Lisa Sue does. But I, when I watched the video on it, I sat there and went, man, that is something where, you're not just talking about hardware and, hey, it's a cool chip. You're actually showing it doing something really unique. And that mm-hmm. would speed up a lot of individuals' workflows. Yeah, absolutely. When you showed this to, you showed this video, you were like, you should check this out because I think you'll be interested in it. And the my interest is ridiculous how important, how the, this this value this provides. If this is a, a thing that I could get. I, I as a, as I've used Photoshop for, uh, I don't know, 20 years or something maybe more than that. And it, it is such a huge pain when a client says, Hey, would you, we need you to remove this background. I'm like, okay, please have contrast. Please have contrast. Okay. Black hair, black background. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> so like this happens all the time. The example they gave was even with the contrast being very minimum, like the, the contrast not being very sharp, it still could figure it out very well. And that part is like, you, you take the example of how much time it takes to remove good contrast, it still takes 15 to 30 minutes, depending on how big the file is and how big the the area that you're trying to get rid of. And then you have the case where the contrast is so awful in some areas, it would increase that, you know, triple, quadruple the amount of time it takes to be precise. And then they show it on this thing and it took like 25 seconds. I'm like, this is amazing. And it will like, I think every person, every designer, every person who does photo manipulation in that level would love to have this happen. This one example, plus like all the other examples they showed, it's a shame that Intel didn't put this as like their forefront because they were just like, they, they bored people. But if they had shown it and they done it, they presented it as better, they could have, you know, just 
use this one thing to talk about nothing else. And it would have been like a lot more interest to a lot more people. Yeah, I think they are playing to their strength. Intel is far better at AMD in software. In fact, probably most companies are better than AMD at software. So that is one of AMD's biggest weaknesses. They make amazing hardware. Their software has always kind of fallen behind. Now, Intel's strength has been software. They do a lot in open source and other elements. This is them demonstrating their software and what they can do with the new hardware that they have coming out. Had they had the combo ready where, hey, here's our new 10 nanometer chip and look at some cool things it could do, I think they could have stole the show pretty easily. Unfortunately, they weren't there yet. Now, AMD and other manufacturers, of course, can go out there and do something similar to this, but Intel's demonstrating it. They are obviously very far ahead in this, and I think this is a good competition heating up where Intel is going to say, okay, yeah, we're not on 7 nanometer, we're on 10 nanometer. Maybe our chips won't be as fast, maybe they will, I'm not sure, but look what we can do on the software side of it as well through some of these neural accelerators and things that we're putting onto the chips that are going to give you a productivity enhancement, and that could make a strong case for Intel. Yeah, and honestly, I think that I, when last time we last episode we talked about whether or not I would switch uh, from in, you know go to from AMD to Intel or, or Nvidia. Uh, this would make that decision a lot harder. And I love that. I love that that competition is coming back, and I wish Intel the best of luck with this. So that's it. Our second episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you all so much for listening, for all the love and support and feedback you gave on the first episode. That's so encouraging to all of us. And this show brings you your bi-weekly tech fix, and we will keep the shows coming as long as you're listening. Now, if you're not all lit up on tech yet, be sure to check out all the great content we have on Destination Linux Network. Head to destinationlinux.network to check out the great podcasts, YouTube partners, Also join the discourse forums so that you can discuss this show, give us feedback, tell us where we said something wrong, but mostly tell us what we did right, and that would be helpful. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We'll see you next week. You won't technically see us because this is an audio podcast, kind of like a laser mouth. Nice. (laughs) 